0: is the heading in this version. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. And put everything under their feet. Now, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. And yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. <clears throat> and again elsewhere, he says, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. Thus he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Amen. And as the Anglicans say, may God bless the reading of his word.
1: Yes, I'll have to use
0: this because,
1: yeah, there we go. Yeah, I just, that's such an exciting script here. Um, Jesus, the better human. It's not the best qualifier of our Lord Jesus Christ, the better human. You know, we can think of, you know, more worthy titles for Jesus. For example, Jesus, the King of Kings. Jesus, the Lord of Lords. Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, the Alpha and Omega. You know, when you say Jesus about a human, it sounds rather paltry. And we all agree that he's a lot more than that. But as I read the script here and I started to reflect on it, I really began to appreciate in a deeper way the titles of Jesus that show his willingness to identify with us humans. To associate with us. Titles like Jesus, Son of Man. Jesus, Son of David. Do you know who David was? He was a great king. He killed Goliath. He was also a very flawed human being. David slept with somebody's wife. Got her pregnant. Then orchestrated the man's death. And yet, Jesus is not ashamed to be called the son of David. That's quite interesting. I've noticed something in scripture. I love the Christian Bible because there is no hiding of people's faults, there are no heroes. Almost every single major person in scripture has flows, and the Lord does not hide them. I think of the patriarchs, for example, the 12 sons. Son number one, Reuben, sleeps with his dad's concubine. Sons number two and three, what do they do? They kill, they murder the men in an entire village because their sister was raped by one man. So they murder all the men in the village. Then the other sons, most of them, they sell their brother, their own flesh and blood, they were thinking of killing him, but then they decided, let's let's sell him instead. And seeing their dad suffering, they told the dad, well, a wild animal has destroyed him. These are the patriarchs. These are the people. God is not ashamed. He's not ashamed of them. I noticed something interesting as well in the genealogy of Jesus. There's there's a pattern. Only four women are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife. Tamar, Tamar seduced her father-in-law, Jake, um, Judah, had him sleep with her and got pregnant by her father-in-law. This is a woman who is mentioned in Christ's genealogy. Rahab is known as Rahab the harlot, harlot, i.e. prostitute. Ruth was a virtuous woman, but she was a foreigner, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, she was the one who slept with David. And as I read these things, I think, yeah, Jesus is not ashamed. And it actually says, in what Bernard just read, Hebrews 5 to 11, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. This humanity of Jesus, this willingness to identify with us and associate with us, it's good news. It's fantastic news. This king of kings and lord of lords, he's willing to stoop. He came down, literally. He came down figuratively. He was not afraid to get his hands dirty. This humility of Jesus is important for us. He was willing to be like us, to know what it feels like. We, we used to attend um, in Scotland a uh, a Christian gathering called Clan Gathering. And I remembered at the end of one of the, um, one of the meetings, I volunteered to help with tidying the kitchen. There was this sink. I've never seen a sink so dirty and disgusting. And I, in those days, I was before I had four sons, I was a very squeamish person. And I remember thinking, I am not putting my hand in that sink. So after everything was cleared, I kept boiling, you know, kettles of water and pouring it in the sink, pouring it on the gunk. And I kept thinking, yeah, it's going to go. But it wasn't going. You know, just a tiny bit of the gunk would go. After a while, I had to use my hands. I had to get my hands dirty. And I always think of this in terms of what Jesus did for us. He didn't just stay in heaven and say, do this, do that. He came to earth. He got his hands dirty. So I praise God. I praise God that Jesus is willing to associate with us. And as I was preparing this, I really felt that I should just emphasize that there there are people here. You need to know that God is not ashamed of you. God is not ashamed of you. Yes, our sins do grieve grieve the Holy Spirit. But I really felt that I should emphasize to some people, God is not ashamed of you. And if you're carrying a load of shame and guilt, it's not from the Lord. It's not from the Lord. You repent and you move on. Shame and guilt is not yours to carry around year after year after year. God is not ashamed. Ashamed of you, could you join me and repeat after me? God is not ashamed of me. Say this, please. God is not ashamed of Say it again, God is not ashamed of me. Hallelujah! So, back to our title, Jesus the Better Human. Now, when we think of the word better, what, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? I could, could I get some ideas when you think of the word better or being a better person? Any ideas? Better at something else? Improved? Okay. Um, I think very often when we think of better, for, for many people in society, think of richer, more beautiful, more educated. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, Bernard, Bernard laughs at me when I tell him. When I was, I was, when I was a child, I was very, very competitive. And I used to say, I used to pray to God to be at the top of the class. And Bernard was really shocked. I said, but later on, I said, but Bernard, look, it says in Deuteronomy 28, you will be the head and not the tail. You know, God does not want us to be failures. And that desire to be better, it's not a sin. You know? But the problem is when the gift and the desire becomes a God. So too, too often as human beings, we have this, we have this propensity to make a gift. So, for example, beauty is a gift. You know, if you happen to be one of those really gorgeous men or women, it's a gift from God. It's to be celebrated, but it's not to become a God. Interestingly enough, the UK's beauty industry in 2020, in spite of COVID, COVID was worth 27 billion pounds. You know, people are spending a lot of money on, on be, becoming be more beautiful. Because they really and genuinely believe that that makes them a better human being. And I agree that we do need, we do need to look after our bodies, yeah? Why not? We need to eat well. We need to exercise. And thank God for cosmetics. You know, I'm very grateful to Donna, who's reintroduced me to Body Shop and those lovely body lotions, especially in winter. My skin gets dry. (laughs) Yes. yeah. Thank you, Donna. So I'm not saying that we're not to look, women, we're not to look after ourselves. And I think of, I mean, who would say no? Do you remember Queen Esther to an Esther beauty treatment? Six months, guys. Imagine six months of oil of myrrh and selected food. And then another six months of perfumes and cosmetics. Ladies, who wouldn't say, who would turn that down? You know, there's nothing wrong. And Esther was beautiful. God used her beauty to further his kingdom. So as I keep saying, the problem is not the gift. The problem is not the intelligence. The problem is not the beauty. It's when we lose focus and when we lose perspective and we turn the gift into a God. So everything is about, okay... It's, we forget about God, and I'm just going to spend all this time being as gorgeous as possible, spend all this time working hard to get to just earn more money so I get a bigger house, a bigger car. It's when we turn the gift, because the gift is from God. The gift is not a sin. It's when we turn the gift into God. So, I think it's really, really important that we, when we think about the word better, we need to have A very concrete idea of what better means, and Jesus. This is where this is this is the exciting part. Jesus has come to Earth to show us what better truly means. So yes, we you know we improve ourselves, but if you want to be that better human being, we have the perfect example in Jesus Christ. Who came to earth? There's always the, the, the danger of having our own ideas of what better is and pursuing that idea. And then, before you know it, months pass, years pass, pass, decades pass, a whole lifetime. And then, in the end, you realize, you know, I spent my life pursuing something and I'm just really empty, at, you know, at best, you know, or at worst. It's actually led me down a path of destruction and distress and heartache. So we need to know what really being that better human being is. Jesus came to earth, and I love the way you put it, to show he came to save us. And he showed us with so much goodness. But I believe that he also came to earth to lead us from glory to glory by his example. Jesus became man as well to enable us to become more like himself, to become more like God. And I want to repeat that. Jesus became man to empower us and enable us to become more like himself, to become more like God. Even from the Old Testament, there's been an invitation to share in the divine nature. It's repeated in the Old Testament Be holy, for I am holy. The Father wants the children to be like him. In the New Testament, Peter says, we have been invited to share in the divine nature. God invites us to be like himself. That's wonderful. That's normal. Father wants his children to be like him. But before Jesus came to earth, through the obvious intervention of God in the lives of individuals, the lives of, you know, the people of Israel and other nations. And through the word of the prophets, there was enough to go on to sort of figure out what Christ, what God was like and what he required. But when Emmanuel came and walked on this earth, Emmanuel, God with us, everything changed. The knowledge and the evidence of the past became a powerful living reality and reality. Our realm has never been the same again. There is something, you know, God, he just didn't stay up there and give instructions. He came down here and exemplified how to live out those instructions. Jesus, the greatest teacher ever, came to teach us by example how to live. Now, Hebrews 2, 5 to 8, I'm not going to go through it again, but Hebrews 2, 2, 5 to 8 that Bernard just read, it talks clearly, it shows clearly God's original purpose for man and how we've really fallen short. You know, the, origin, the original purpose is first to rule, first to reign. He made us a bit lower, lower than the angels and we are to be in charge. But so, it says in Hebrews clearly that has not happened. That's why Natalie Bowers has issues when she sees a mouse, you know, what, what can a mouse do to me in my mind? I know it's like, it's a mouse, please, Natalie, but I'm, I'm scared of mice. I'm scared of lions. We've lost the authority in many ways. You know, people are afraid of COVID. People are afraid of germs. There are lots of things in our earth. We are not in charge. We've lost the authority through sin that was originally ours. In Genesis one, at the end of Genesis one, there was perfection, By Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they've sinned. Two verses, two chapters after. By Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. By Genesis 6, God decides enough is enough. I'm destroying the world. Genesis 7, the world is destroyed. Genesis 8, a new beginning. Noah and his family come out of the ark. Genesis 9, here we go again. Noah sins he gets drunk. He's lying down in his tent naked. His son sees him, and he, and he, and he curses his son. It's like, God, please, can't we, can't we get it right for even a little while? You know, we keep sinning. We keep sinning. And that's what comes out in, in, in this first part of Hebrews. But, guys, here is the exciting part, and this is the gist of my message. In chapter 9, it says, but we do seek. Jesus. You see that but? It makes all the difference. You see, many of us, we can go through our lives and we can become really depressed when we see how much we've messed up. Or we become really depressed thinking not just of our sins, but how other people have sinned against us. That's the unforgiveness. You know, you keep thinking, well, I messed up. That depresses you. And you keep thinking, oh, that person sinned against me. And that's all that's going through your mind. And that's how many people live. And that's awful for your mental health. It's awful for your soul. But if you decide, you know what? I see Jesus. I am going to keep seeing Jesus and I am going to fix my eyes on Jesus as we sang, my only living hope. Your perspective will change. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you won't have problems in life but your perspective will change and you will be to become more and more like that Jesus. Now, we hear so often, keep your eyes on Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. What what does that really mean? It can can sound like a cliche after a while. What does it mean? Does it mean that I conjure up this mental image of what Jesus looks like, and I go through life, you know, thinking, yeah, I'm fixing my eyes on this image? No. No. There are very practical things that we need to do. It means communing with Jesus daily as a way of life through his word. You know, when we read the word of God, it's an act of worship. It's a way of gazing on Jesus because Jesus and his word are one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So as I set my sights every day, I am reading the word of God. This is not about being religious. This is not about, you know, following rules. This is reality. I want to fix my eyes on Jesus, and this is what I need to do. I read the word. I get the word inside of me. I worship and I praise. I sing the word. I pray to him. So there's a daily, there's a communing, an ongoing communing going on. When I'm teaching my class, you know, I'm so filled with the word of God when I, that things come out of me because I'm filled, you know, in my daily walk, in my daily life, and that is what we need to do. The book of Hebrews, like many of the um, New Testament books, they were written to Christians who were living in a pagan Roman context. And all around them, they were surrounded by lifestyles that militated against the ways of God. It's the same for us today. And it's, I think it's even worse. I mean, we ha- they didn't have television They didn't have the internet. They didn't have social media. We have all these things around us. And these messages are coming out all the time. And many of the messages that are coming out in society and in schools, they're against the knowledge of God. They're against the ways of God. It's interesting that Christians often get criticized for indoctrinating children. But you know who's doing the indoctrinating these days? Putting doctrines into? It's the non-Christians. There's an agenda pushing certain messages all the time. You read the news. You, you, know, you, you, you look on the internet. There's an agenda. They're pushing, pushing. They're repeating. That is indoctrination. But it, these are doctrines from the pit of hell. And as adult Christians... And, with, and, and people with children. We need to ensure that we're putting in the doctrine of God into ourselves and, in, and into our children because these things will affect us. They will affect us, what we're exposed to. So, don't be afraid. Don't think, oh, I'm being awful to my child by teaching them so much about God. You know, I should just give them lots of space and let them make their own decision. No. If you don't put in the doctrine Other seeds are being sown into your children all the time and into us. It has to be deliberate. It must be deliberate. So the word of God, I say, we have to inoculate ourselves and vaccinate ourselves with the word of God against the virus of the spirit of the Antichrist because it is there and it will affect us. Interestingly enough, in Deuteronomy 6.6, now listen, take this one for indoctrination. Jesus said, God says in Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Buy on your ha- and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses. And on your gates. It sounds quite fanatical, doesn't it? But this was, this was thousands of years ago, as I said. When the Israelites, they left as a community. And they weren't as exposed to all the wickedness around. How much more today for us as Christians. We have to do it because if we don't do it, the world will do it. The enemy will do it for us. That void that is left, the enemy will fill it. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of God dwell in you richly. The word of God, Jesus, let let it dwell in you richly. What's dwelling in you is what you're going to live out of. If what's dwelling in you is the world, that's going to come out. Sociologists have a term called internalization, externalization. It's found in the word. What you take in is what you give out. So even though I've been born, saved again, etc., etc., washed by the blood of Jesus, if I continually and deliberately expose myself to certain things, sooner or later, that's going to be the fruit of my life. So there's a very peculiar passage in Genesis 30, Where Jacob, because Laban cheated on him, they they had made an agreement. Laban had said, your wages will be all the speckled and mottled and spotted cattle. And Laban, being Laban, treacherous, he took away all the cattle. But Jacob, also being quite treacherous and, and quite smart, what he did, and I always found this really peculiar. He cut branches from trees and he peeled off the bark. And when the animals were mating, he would let the animals gaze on the bark. And interestingly enough, those animals, even though they were not spotted and mottled and, and spotted, they, when they produced, when they gave birth, what they gave birth to was spot, spotted and speckled. And I thought, that, that's really interesting. You know, what we're feeding on, what we're gazing on. That is what we're going to produce. Someone once said, you become like the person or the thing you worship. You become like the person or the thing you're gazing on. Even the sociologists say that. The Bible said. it. The sociologists recognize this. Now, I'm not saying preaching a gospel of works. Of course, as again, Jim said, Jesus did it. He did it. What Jesus did for us to bring us to salvation, that was amazing and no one can do it. And it also says in Philippians, it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's God who's doing it. It's the spirit of God. But guys, we also have a part to play. You know that? The fact that God has done so many wonderful things, we also have to deliberately set ourselves up for success. There are at least eight scriptures, um, passages in the New Testament that, start, that, that begin with, make every effort to. That tells me that we have to make an effort as well. For example, Jesus himself in Luke 13 says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Yes, he knew he, he, Jesus had done, done everything, but he's still telling us to make an effort. Peter tells us, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, um, self-control, etc., etc. We need to make an effort as well. So when people say, when we say, and we bandy this about, Jesus did it all, it means that Jesus did everything that he could do, that he had to do. He did it all. But it doesn't mean that we have nothing to do. I have seen Christians go off the rails. I'm not saying they lost their salvation. I've seen Christians do foolish things and go off the rails, we have to deliberately live wisely, set ourselves up for success, decide what we're exposing ourselves to. King Solomon started off so well. He was a son of David. God appeared to him repeatedly. Look at how son Solomon ended up because of who he had around him. Okay. Now, I just think it's really amazing that, you know, I keep saying, saying this because I think it's It's wonderful. That Jesus teaches us, he is the one who teaches us the true meaning of better. And Jesus, this is something that I find really interesting as well. Jesus is to be our looking glass, our mirror. You look in the mirror to see what you're like. And in James, James 1 talks about, you know, Christians looking into the mirror, but then walking away, and forgetting what they're like. He says we need to look at Jesus. So basically, we need to look at Jesus. He is the one who will tell us who we are. There's so many problems with identity in our culture today. People are just confused about their identity. And I'm not saying that it's an easy solution. But I do believe that as we look in the mirror and we see ourselves, who we are, as we look at Jesus, because that's who we are becoming like. He is our identity. I'm not, you know, the color of my skin is not my identity. Yeah, I am Natalie, the black woman. I am Natalie, the woman. I am Natalie, the person who is half blind. That is not my major identity. I'm not going to walk around with an issue, a chip on my shoulder. I am Natalie, the child of God. I you are... Children, that needs to be your identity, chosen, loved, accepted, and beloved more than a conqueror. As you gaze on Jesus, your identity becomes clear, and a lot of the confusion starts to fall away. And at this point, I want to say something else as well. So again, sociologists, you can tell I did a bit of soci- quite a bit of sociology. Sociologists actually come up, have come up with the term looking-glass self. They say that very often, your perception of yourself is based on the way in which major people in your life relate to you and the way in which society relates to you. So if people treat you like a criminal or people treat you like someone of little worth, very often, that's how people end up perceiving themselves. So as teachers and parents, we have a lot of influence on on young people, you know, the way we relate to them. But the wonderful news is, and I, and I really felt that the Lord wanted to speak to people about this, you know, in, in the congregation about this. Maybe someone in your past has re, um, repeatedly treated you in a certain way. And you've come to see yourself in the light of the way in which you've been treated. And the Lord wants to break that. The Lord wants to break that identity off you. Also, another thing that the devil does, the looking glass, your mistakes in the past. Things that you did way back and you're still seeing that as your identity. And I got a second proclamation for us to make. If I invite you to say to me, with me, I am not the sin that I committed in the past. Could you please repeat that? I am not the sin that I committed in the past. I am not the sin that I committed. In the past. I am who Jesus says I am. I am who Jesus says I am. I am who Jesus says I am. I, am who Jesus I am. So it doesn't matter what the mistake is. You've repented, you've moved on, you have a new looking glass. It doesn't matter who said what about you, who treated you badly. Forgive them. Jesus is, where you, is, is your point of reference. He is your identity. Amen? Very quickly, coming to an end. There's a Brazilian author called Paulo Freire, and I really like his books. He wrote a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And he says something really interesting, and it applies to all of us. He says, very often, if you, I mean, if you, you, you know a bit about history... Many revolutionists start off with really good ideas. They are sincere. They see wrongs in society. They have not imagined these wrongs. And they really, really want to make a difference. And they start off really well. Very often, these same people, as time goes on, they become more corrupt than the leaders that, that they've overthrown. thrown. And one thing that, that he says is very, it's very hard if you don't have an example. Even though you have good intentions, if you don't have an example, it's very hard for you to even become who you want to become. They haven't had a, a, an example of Christ. The example they've had, they've had examples of corrupt leaders. They themselves become corrupt leaders and they do worse things than the leaders that, that, that they overthrew. Paul and John Sanford talk talk very similar about the same thing. They say, why is it so often, many of us say, I would never be like my mom or dad. I will never do what they did. And sometimes in families, generation after generation after generation, you see the same, it's alcoholism, this one's abusing his wife, this one's, you know, generation after generation, the same thing. You see, if we don't have an example, and we don't have someone in whom, who we're fixing our eyes on, then destinies will become tendencies. I mean, tendencies will become destinies. When you have Jesus and you fix your eyes on Jesus, you see, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Not only do you see the problem, but you see the salvation and you walk in the salvation as well. The academics, they see the problem very well, but without Jesus, even though you try your best and you have the best intentions, you will fall. And that is why someone like Nelson Mandela, he could have been bitter. He was different from many of these uh, revolutionists, because he had Jesus, he was able to forgive, even though he was wrongly imprisoned for decades. It's Jesus who makes the difference. He came to earth and he showed us how to live. And just coming to the end quickly, you know, by sharing in our humanity, Jesus has broken the power of him who holds the power of death. And that's the devil. And death comes in all forms. Death is not just ceasing to breathe. Death comes, it's in pornography and all these different addictions. It's the inability to forgive But when you have Jesus, he breaks the power of death. And I want to encourage you, please, guys, let's talk reality now. Some people struggle with sins for years and years and years. I struggled with unforgiveness for years. I knew in my head I had to forgive. It was a struggle. It took me years to, and I still sometimes have to be, you know, really careful and I want to encourage us as a body, whenever we have struggles, whatever your struggle is, don't run away from God. It might be two years, three years, four years, five years. Keep going to Jesus. The victory will come. The victory will come. Be faithful to him. He's faithful to you. It doesn't matter what your struggle is. Don't run. You need Jesus. Jesus. Don't be like Adam and Eve and run away and hide. You need Jesus. Keep going to him. Say, God, if you have to say, God, forgive me. Ten, you know, every day. Keep going to him. Because the word of God says that he has broken the power of the devil over your life. Sooner or later, you will get your victory. We we must not walk and live in condemnation. And we must not pretend that as soon as you become a Christian, everything's going to be perfect. I have a friend who's been struggling with smoking for many years. Many people look at her and say, oh, you're a Christian and you're smoking for all these years. She loves the Lord. I know she loves the Lord. She had a very traumatic, I'm not making excuses for her. She, she was traumatized years ago and this, she developed this habit of smoking as a way to, to deal with things. And I, but I know there's victory for her. I know the Lord loves her. I know there's victory for you, whatever your struggle is. Finally, I love this, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help us when we're being tempted. Very linked to what what I just said. We have a God who can empathize with us. I had a student um, some years ago, and I was telling him, you can do better in Spanish. And he turned around and said to me, well, miss, you know, I have a stutter, but I guess that means nothing to you to him and I said, you know what? When I was your age, I had vision only in one eye. I missed quite a bit of school. I was back and forth, you know, you know, going back and forth to the clinic, to the hospital because of my eyes. I know what it feels like. I could empathize with you. But as Christians, we need to realize that to empathize with someone and to show compassion does not mean to lower the standard, Jesus empathizes with us. He's very compassionate, long-suffering. He's not lowering this. He is not lowering his standards. He's not lowering his standards. I said to my student, "Listen, three quarters of the paper is based on written, you know, listening, reading, writing. Only twenty-five percent is based on on, on on speaking. Go and work harder and do better." So Jesus is loving. He's empathetic. He's kind. He's long-suffering. He's not lowering the standards. And do you know why? It's not because he's a demanding God. It's because he knows what he put in you. It's because he knows the treasure that he's put in you. And he wants you to be the best that you can be. Not as the world sees best. Not as the world sees best. But as he sees best. And he's not going to lower the standard. And that is good news. He's not going to lower the standard. Jesus knows you are a treasure, and he wants you to be who he's called you to be. Amen? So to conclude, very quickly, there, you know, there are highlights from Jesus' life. You know, he came to earth. There are certain highlights that we can, we can learn from. Jesus went on the cross. He went down. Don't be, don't be afraid to stoop, please. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I just don't want to go into that situation. It will be too humiliating. Sometimes we're called to stoop. Jesus did it. And before we can be lifted up again, sometimes we need to humble ourselves deliberately. Don't be afraid to forgive people. Be ready to forgive people. Remember Jesus on the cross? And he was able to say, God forgive them for they do not know what they do. There have been people in your life perhaps who probably put you on a cross and what they did to you, it probably felt as if they were hammering nails in your hands and in your feet. We need to be ready to call on Jesus and to walk like Jesus and to forgive these people. We, want, we say we want to be like Jesus, this is the reality. He came and He showed us how to be like Him. We need to be merciful, we need to be faithful. And we need to be servants. Jesus came to serve. It was so beautiful when Jesus, the king, took that towel off and he washed his disciples' feet. I don't want to embarrass you, Neil and Cheryl. It was so beautiful when you guys served us last week. We see him. We live like him. And in conclusion, I would want to say to, to, to all of us, let's walk with Jesus. Let's gaze on him. Let's commune with Him. Let's learn more and more of Him, and then let's go and do likewise. Amen.
2: Natalie, can I can I have you back, please? Do you mind? I'm going to spring something on you now because. Um, I, you know I don't do this often. I think I did this semi-recently when, when John spoke, and it just felt as though there was, a, there was an invitation to respond to John, and I think that we have to do that again now. There are kind of two halves to the message that Natalie has just shared with us. One is that we must make every effort, and that seems really hard, and it challenges us, and, it, and, and there's a temptation in that to feel uh, guilt and condemnation, but the other half of that coin that Natalie spoke first, which trumps that, God is not ashamed of us. And Natalie, in a moment, I'm going to share a few more thoughts, and then I'm going to ask you to pray for us all. And I believe that as you pray, I think there is going to prophetically be a breaking of chains. Um, And so I'm going to ask all of us to be open to those things that God has laid on our hearts as you've been speaking that actually you haven't just shared a message with us now that actually there's going to be a release of the holy spirit's power to break chains to break patterns of thought that destroy us to to break behaviors i think that's going to happen this morning and i want to um just share with you a couple of um a couple of Quotes that um, were just running through my mind as Natalie spoke. The first one I don't know who said it, but they said that the Christian faith hasn't been uh, tried and found wanting. It's uh, it's been found hard and left untried. And I think there is a there is an invitation to us to persevere in this, knowing that God is not ashamed of us to persevere. Knowing that when we fail, that right then in that moment He is saying, "I'm not ashamed of you." Every single failure past, present, and future, he knows, and when we fail, rather than turning away from him and feeling he's disappointed, he says, come back to me again, and I think that's what he wants to do us to do this morning. Uh, the other one is, uh, is a, a phrase, this is from one of my old pastors, I think it's one of the most profound things I've ever heard, because I think, well, no, it's not, but I love it. He said, God, we, we inform one another through the formal, but we form one another through the informal. And so I just want to say particularly to parents as we have received that charge to input into our children that there is a you know there is a our children and we see this I used to be a teacher and children see and they can see through <laughs> they can see through things and they can see through people to the heart of the person and they can spot a fraud and and it isn't about you being perfect it's about your children seeing that you follow Jesus in every area of your life, even when you fail, even when you get it wrong. It's your children knowing that you are following God in every way. So I'm, I'm not going to pray. I'm going to hand back over to Natalie. I'm, are you okay to pray for us, Natalie? Um, Natalie, you lead us how you'd like to. You lead people to stand, whatever you want to do. We're going we're gonna to entrust ourselves to the gift that God's put in you this morning, okay? Okay.
1: Yeah Lord we just actually we entrust ourselves to you. We entrust ourselves to you Lord God. We just want to thank you Father and Son and Holy Spirit for your love for us. The greatness of your love for us. Your love for us is greater than the repugnance that you feel for sin. It's it's greater It's greater, your love for us. Yes, you hate sin, but your love for us is so great. And that's what we trust in, Lord God. We trust in you. We trust in your love. We trust in your faithfulness. Lord, we want to thank you for not just what you've done for us, not just the things that you've given to us, but we want to thank you so far for what you've done in us For the way in which you've been changing us from glory to glory. We want to thank you. Lord, I want to thank you that you helped me to forgive. I want to thank you that you helped me to become more and more like Jesus. I want to thank you for your spirit. Decade after decade. I'm I'm a few decades old. Since I was three years old, I started to go to church. And you've stuck with me. Through high and low. And that's what you've done for all of us, God. Through high and low, you've stuck with us. You're faithful, God. And we want to thank you for all that you've been doing in us, Lord God. And we want to say, God, Father, that we realize that we're not perfect as yet. But again, we trust in your love and we look to you. And we yield ourselves to you. And we say, God, continue the good work that you've started your word says that you will be faithful to complete it, Lord God. I'm not looking to myself, Lord God, for salvation. We're not looking to ourselves. We're looking to you. And we humbly call, and call on you, Lord Father, for the areas in our lives, Lord God. Ask you, Lord, keep asking you to forgive us and to keep cleansing us. And where we have idols in our hearts, Lord God that you would break those idols and we will bow the knee only to Jesus Christ, that we will not live with idols in our hearts. So, Lord, we invite you today to come by your Spirit and help us. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Help us, God. Deliver us from evil. Lord, you know the stronghold of unforgiveness that was in my life, and somehow, miraculously, you broke it And I believe that what you did for me, you will do for others. And I pray, Lord, if there are people here today who struggle, who have strongholds in their lives, be it unforgiveness, be it pornography, whatever it is, Lord God, that you have broken the power of the devil. And we invite you, Lord God, to come and break chains and come and set your people free. Set your people free, God, from mental anguish, from the torment of mental anguish, the whispering of the devil over the years that's brought in torment and mental anguish. Set us free to be the sons and daughters that you've called us to be. Thank you that in spite of our sin, you still smile on us. You still smile on us. Your smile is on us, Lord God, because of your love for us. And so we invite you, Lord. Come and have your precious way in our lives and in our midst midst today. We bless all the young people in our midst in a special way. We say that they are yours. We say that they are yours. Every young person here, loved by the Lord, Father, let their identity be in you. Let every wicked and false identity fall to the ground. We make a stand with you for the next generation. And we say, Satan, the Lord rebuke you concerning our children. We say the Lord loves the next generation. He will not stand by and see them devoured by wicked ideology. We thank you, God, that you fight. For this generation. Let every young person here know. That they've been called by you. That they are precious. That they belong to you. That they do not belong to the world. And that you will fight for them. You will roll up your sleeves. You will fight for them Lord God. Let them have that conviction. And that assurance. There is a God who loves me. And who cares for me. And who will always be faithful to me. And who does not hold my sin against me. And who will fight for me. Oh God, together we bless our young people and we praise you for all that you're doing. Amen.